Hi, I'm Alicia. And I'm Robin. And you're listening to Bowel Moments. The podcast sharing real talk about the realities of IBD. Serve on the rocks. This week, we talked to Crohn's and rare disease advocate, Aaron Blocker. Aaron was diagnosed with Crohn's disease when he was 17 and has since been diagnosed with a rare disease called hypophosphatasia. We talked to him about how he started his Facebook community called Support for Crohn's and Ulcerative Colitis and how it's grown. We talked to him about how he's expanded it to now include folks with more rare diseases as well, since that has affected him. We talked to him about how he's used his degree in biomedical research to create interesting and informative content for his pages. And we talked to him about parenting his three small children while living with two chronic illnesses. Cheers! Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bell Moments. This is Robin. Hey, guys. This is Alicia, and we are absolutely delighted to be joined by Aaron Blocker. Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Aaron, first question for you. What are you drinking? I'm actually drinking a beer. <laughs> Just a beer? Is it? Does it have a name? Yeah. Is it a kind? <laughs> um, it's Michelob Ultra. Nice. All right. Lime. Okay. Very yeah. refreshing. I like it. All right. Summertime. <laughs> Robin, what about you? I'm on the lemon ginger tea kick. Sounds what delicious. about you, Alicia? I am drinking a raspberry gin and elderflower cocktail. It doesn't have a name, but that's what it is. Ooh, very pretty. Well, Erin, again, we're so excited to have you on the show. I know you have quite the story. And so the next question for you is, what is your connection to the IBD community? Tell us your story. So I have Crohn's disease. I was diagnosed in 2009 at age 17. So I've been living with it since then. Of course, it presented way early on, about five years before my my actual diagnosis. But yeah, so I was diagnosed in 2009 as a pediatric patient and have been living with Crohn's since then. And it's been completely uneventful that whole time. I mean, I feel pretty lucky in terms of living with Crohn's disease. It's very well controlled with medication. I've not had any surgery related to the disease. I still have all of my bowel, uh, which is not the case for a lot of people. You know, I did in the beginning, like a lot of people was in the hospital and almost had surgery. And, you know, I spent several weeks, you know, in that initial period trying to get everything under control so that I didn't have to have surgery. And luckily we came out on top. Um, and then once I got on to biologic medications, ever since then, it's I've had a fairly uneventful go at it, thankfully. You know, I, I'm very grateful that my disease is controlled by medication, again, because I know that so many others are not in the same boat that I am. Um, I've been in remission since 2015, and I've been on the same drug since 2015 as well. Um, um, I've had a couple of changes and a couple minor additions and, you know, I've had small blockages and things of that nature, but none that have ever required any surgical intervention. You know, I feel, I genuinely feel lucky to be kind of in the place that I am with my disease. Um, you know, there are days where I don't necessarily think about it. And then that's kind of something that for me is I know that I'm in a good place when I go a day with not thinking that I have Crohn's disease. Even though you've been in remission, I know that you have been a very loud voice for patients and you started a Facebook community like very early on. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So when I was diagnosed in 2009, I had barely heard of Crohn's disease or IBD or also colitis, or uh, I didn't know much about what that meant. And um, I knew that it was serious. You know, when my pediatric doctor at the time kind of you know had the conversation with me and we went through the diagnostic journey of, you know, ended up with Crohn's disease. I started very early on and it was early to 
2010. I was diagnosed mid to late 2009, and it was probably mid, early to mid 2010 when I decided to start a Facebook page. And it was very early when Facebook was not super new, but new enough where pages and stuff like that would get on and you like a page, a follow page was really just beginning. Um, and I did it out of a pure want to talk to other people living with Crohn's disease. And I was one of the people, like I was a kid, you know, 17, I needed somebody who knew at least somewhat of what I was going to. So I started it out of that. And, you know, ever since then, it's kind of, I think I got lucky getting in early with it. You know, ever since then, it's grown into something way more than I ever thought that it would have gotten to. And then it has allowed me to do things like travel across the country and talk about living with Crohn's disease and, you know, go to a bunch of events and really try to champion the patient voice as much as I can. It's allowed me to do some really, really cool things, you know, that I wouldn't have been able to do without living with Crohn's disease or without just starting a page out of the pure want to meet others with this disease. And I've built up a pretty big following on the internet and do my best to kind of contribute and help patients where I can and help educate patients and support them in the journey. Cause there are definitely a lot of patients that, that need it and are not again in the place that I'm in. Um, so it's nice to be able to contribute back to a community that's a very large community, but one that definitely needs support. So, yeah. Did you say the name and I missed this name of your page and I missed it? No, it's very basic. It's just support for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. I mean, it's pretty easy to remember. That's great. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so how many folks are currently engaging with your page? So we have, there's 27,000 people that like it. And then Holy we cow. have a monthly reach of anywhere from like 100,000 to 400,000 people, ebbs and flows. But yeah, it's pretty big and uh, has allowed me to do a lot of things. But it's been really cool to, to watch it grow and to organically grow over the years to where it's at now. So just one or two people, like, I mean, just, just, just a, a handful, <laughs> just a handful of people. A couple of questions about this and, and I don't, right. you can take them in whatever order you want to take them in. So <laughs> okay. like what themes have you seen come up the most on this page other than diet? Because that one I know mm -hmm. is a given. And then right. have you seen those evolve in the years, like since when you started until now? So yeah, I think that early on, when everybody was just like getting the feel for Facebook pages and community, it definitely was more of a support. People were coming in and, you know, want to talk to each other and, you know, post and try to interact with each other just for general support. And I think over the years, it's definitely evolved. And I think part of it has evolved as the treatment landscape for IBD has evolved since then. I mean, when I was diagnosed in 2009, we had just a handful of treatments. They were like three biologics available and they're very similar and you had these pills. And since then we have a whole slew of medications. Now we've got, you know, 10 biologics out there. We got new oral pills and stuff like that. So the conversation has definitely shifted a lot to, you know, has anybody tried this new drug? You know, what has your experience been like on this medication? You know, what can I expect? You know, does it hurt? I mean, there's a lot of treatment talk. And I think that, again, that has evolved with the pace at which the IBD treatment landscape has fallen. But there's still also a lot of support that people need and are wanting from that page. So yeah, it's a lot of treatment, a lot of support still, 
Um, but it definitely evolves and there are different people. There are people who have stuck around since the beginning, which is really cool who stick around and, you know, say that they've been there the whole time. I mean, I think that makes sense that more people are asking about, about medications. Cause like you said, this is it's uh, the treatment landscape has definitely changed a lot. And so I, it's not surprising to me. And I'm guessing of course, that diet is always high on the list of things that people want to talk always. about. Always have things like complementary medicine come up or anything like that. And then, so are these people just in the United States or have you engaged, have you gotten people from around? across the world so i mean definitely diet has always been something that's come up and it still will for sure and yeah there's been stuff about complementary medicine i mean throughout the years i've had opportunities to kind of host little like lives and stuff like that on uh, things like complementary medicine and and what you can do i mean and mental health's been a big thing over the last few years it's been a big push and we've done some work with that had some experts on who you know talked about that and people who treat patients with that IBD, they're, you know, the mental health aspect of that. And then, you know, there's always stuff like people saying that they can cure your disease with, you know, this specific complementary medication that's always there. But yeah, there's been a lot of different things that have come up. And I think that we've learned so much in terms of lifestyle, things that you can do to, to kind of help manage your disease that genuinely work. Things that, you know, the huge push for mental health, which I think was a very big deal over the last few years, which I think I would consider as kind of a complementary medicine to, to what you're currently doing and being treated. So all over the world, it's not just the United States. There's a good chunk of people in the United States. But weirdly enough, there's a really big portion of people from like the UK and Brazil. Um, it's probably two and three uh, that interact with the page and stuff like that. And I do look at other demographics. There's a lot of um, there's a lot more female voices that like interact with the page than male, which I always thought was interesting. And I think that part of that lends to the fact that a lot of men don't speak up about their disease, whereas there's not as open about it. But yeah, it's all over which is super cool, primarily the United States, but there's some uh, UK and um, Brazil, really enough. I'm curious, is it hard to admin that many followers? Do you get help? Is it hard to, to admin that many followers and to monitor that? It can be. And I think that over the years, a lot of stuff like with Facebook has evolved that allows you a little more ways to sort of you know, like automate some of the admin part of it. Like there's certain things that you can do that you can limit um, that you can you know have to flag that, and that's been very helpful but throughout the years I've had people come in um, just here and there who other patients who I know who I trust that had the ability to kind of help moderate some of it over the last few years it's primarily been me doing it but a lot of that just lends to the every evolving platform that is there that that genuinely does allow some more of automated moderation but there are definitely times it's really hard to do that and to go in and really literally sift through a bunch of comments, but also the community as a whole, they have the ability to kind of like report stuff and send stuff to me. And I do get that. And there are people who are really involved just in the community as a whole that kind of send stuff to me and, you know, kind of help moderate as a whole, um, which I think speaks to the community itself. And there, you know, there are people out there who don't want misinformation and people who, you know, you don't want anybody bullying on your, your website or anything like that. So it can be difficult at times for sure, but it's gotten easier over the years. And I think part of that is again, the evolving platform and then just being able to the fostering the community that we kind of wanted to build has generally helped not having to moderate as much. That actually gives me hope because I'm legitimately trying to protect our peace on right. our social media platforms. I mean, I don't want misinformation. I don't want bullying, but I also don't want anybody bullying us. 
Right. I don't want anybody bullying each other or guests or us either. So yeah, that makes me hopeful that it can be done. It's a, I mean, it's definitely a fine line. You don't want to push too many people away, but you also don't want people to come in and push other people out. So you have to find kind of that middle ground of, you know, what kind of constitutes a response and what, you know, constitutes potentially banning somebody from it. I mean, I've had, had gone down that road before. I mean, there are people who no longer have access just because they cause too much strife. But yeah, it, it definitely can be done. It just, and I think that over time it gets easier to do. I do think that's really hard though, because you don't want to necessarily stifle someone's power passion and their voice. And many people get really excited and passionate to share what works for them. And sometimes that passion can translate into what's the word I'm thinking of? Like bullshit. <laughs> no, I was thinking like <laughs> zealous, like zealotry. You know what I mean? Like that passion can sometimes become like, this is the answer. And no, there are no other answers because this worked for me. And I think it's so difficult because we all three of us know that what works for Robin isn't going to work for Aaron, isn't going to necessarily work for me. And, but not everybody does, I think. And sometimes they just really get into the sort of, you know, mindset of like, I have stumbled upon the cure. And so therefore I, I must tell the masses. And, and like, right. again, you don't want to stifle their excitement and what them sharing what worked for them. But at the same token, you also want them to be like, you need to calm down a little bit like that. It worked for you. you. Cool. So it sounds like you do some education on there where you invite some guest speakers in. How often do you do that? And then is that something that organically happens because you've seen a lot of conversation about a topic or do you have planned content? I mean, there's stuff that is definitely planned for sure. And the stuff that involves having some kind of expert in is definitely planned more just because you're on their schedule, especially if it's like a physician or somebody who's clinical, uh, you know, their schedules are very crazy sometimes. So um, that part is planned. A lot of the content on there is stuff that I create personally that I do and, and kind of moderate. And um, I have gotten to a point where I've put out enough content where I can recycle some stuff and, you know, stuff that's, that's meaningful, stuff that, you know, may help, you know, I mean, there are certain things that you can, you know, certain edge education points like you know what is inflammatory bowel disease and things that you can expect with that that's definitely stuff that I plan out and do a lot of it has shifted just content in general has shifted to video these days you know so like reels and tiktok and all that stuff and having to evolve with the times is also kind of difficult to transition but I think what I hope people see and get out of it is either support or education because it's primarily what a lot of people are looking for and not like not education in the terms of people People, you know, don't know anything, but trying to learn about their disease and their condition and kind of what treatments options are and what people go through and, you know, how to hopefully advocate for themselves and, and their treatment, especially early on. So just something I try to champion as much as I can is advocating for yourself. And that's what a lot of content kind of evolves around. But I do my best to do a mix of things and to bring people in when it's appropriate. And, but again, to try to not just push out content that shows, you know, like me or anything like that, but something that is meaningful to the community. And again, it's nice to be able to recycle some stuff now that I've been doing this so long. Aaron, you also are very open that you have an additional chronic illness that you're coping with. So would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Yeah. So in 2017, I was diagnosed with an ultra rare genetic disease called hypophosphatasia. It's a genetic metabolic bone disease. I grew up having issues with kind of my bones and my skeleton and muscles and uh, we didn't know what that was attributed to. And then 
you know, once I kind of got to 16, 17, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. There were certain things that kind of got pushed to the back burner of maybe we can relate, you know, weak bones and stuff like that to being malnourished, which I was. And when I was 20 years old, you know, I had both of my hips totally replaced. And then when I was 24 doing a master's degree, um, I dislocated my hip replacement and had my hips re-replaced again at that time. And, you know, I've had 22 surgeries related to that disease. And yeah, so after I had my hips done again in 2016, I took it upon myself to figure out what was going on because right after I had my hips replaced again, I was diagnosed with severe osteoporosis and a couple of other things. And none of that added up to, you know, what none of that made sense to me. And I knew that something was going on, that it wasn't just related to having Crohn's disease and all of that. So yeah, long story short, I came up with the diagnosis. I was right. And yeah, I've been living with that ever since. I've, you know, dealing with that since. So it's definitely takes up more of my time than Crohn's disease does. It's definitely the top health issue that I deal with. But yeah, so that's a little bit of that story. Been very open about it. Um, yeah. You know, the rare, rare disease community is very different, but, you know, very similar in a lot of ways. I mean, people want support, you know, need, people want to learn about their disease and, you know, know what the treatment's like. And the different, uh, one of the huge differences of that disease, you know, hyperphosphatasia versus Crohn's is that like we talked a little bit about earlier, there was ton of treatments for for IBD these days. I mean, you got a slew of pills and biologics. And for my disease, there's one treatment that was approved in 2015. And it's an orphan drug and not everybody can get on it. Um, it's only approved for a certain subset of the disease. I do, I am on it. I've been on it since 2018, but it's um, six self-injections every single week. Um, and I've been doing that since 2018. Uh, Well, first of all, high five on figuring this out on your own. And I guess it really is. This is what is remarkable about, frankly, I think the chronic disease community, but I, I, you know, obviously we interact much more with the IBD community, but our IBD folks are incredibly smart, well-researched people when it comes to their disease. So I guess I'm also not terribly surprised that you were like, I'm going to figure this out and <laughs> I'm going to like go on PubMed and find all the crap I need to, for this. I am curious if, I mean, because many of our folks have to use steroids as part of their treatment regimen to get inflammation under control. Did that contribute in any way? I'm imagining it's not helpful helpful for the hypophosphatasia. Right. So it's not, it's one of the hard things about treating both diseases is that, you know, steroids are really good in some situations for Crohn's disease, but really not good for the hypophosphatasia. And, you know, obviously like NSAIDs and stuff like that are good for sort of the pain management aspect of hypophosphatasia, but not good for Crohn's disease. So it's definitely a balance. And they do think the steroids contributed. I was on a brief stint of steroids right after I was diagnosed for maybe two months and it wasn't a huge dose. Um, it was a lower dose, but it, you know, kind of had to taper off and while we were getting everything treated. And so I developed avascular necrosis in my hips and I have it in my knees and, you know, steroids can cause that, but they said that they've never seen it cause it that severely that quickly in somebody. So they think that that was just like, oh, the steroids kicked that kind of into overdrive with the hypophosphatasia, caused some stuff. But yeah, so it's not great. I have had to have steroids, you know, a little bit since my diagnosis while my treatments and stuff were kind of changing and everything like that. And there has been some additional damage from steroids, but it's just trying to figure out, you know, what is the most important thing to treat and get under control at the time and how do you kind of manage that? So it's very challenging from, from that standpoint. And I think that if my disease, Crohn's disease ever takes a really bad turn, it'll be even more challenging to manage both. 
Is your gastroenterologist a little bit familiar with hypophosphatasia and, and does he or she work with your rare disease doctor? So the familiarity part is no. You know, I uh, recently had to switch GI doctors just because mine retired at the end of last year. So I'm having to kind of do a little bit of education on kind of the disease and, and the therapy that I'm on for hypophosphatasia does affect some lab work. So there are things that we have to obviously talk about. And when I go to like my next, I have to go to state for treatment for hypophosphatasia. Um, so mine, you know, the next thing is that, you know, she, my doctor at Vanderbilt is going to send a letter to my new GI and try to collaborate as much as they can. There's not a huge overlap in some of the things that, you know, the rarities doctor does, the GI does. It's just being aware that, you know, steroids are not good for the disease and stuff like that. But I, ha I have to tell them all the time that, you know, my lab work for this one test um, is going to be really off and they call me every single time freaking out. So... <laughs> Again, I feel like something that happens in our Crohn's disease community is the whole, like, I know my body better than anybody. And so I can tell you that whether this is actually con concerning or not, so that's not terribly surprising. The other thing that I would imagine contributes to a fair amount of like stress and management in your life is that you also have twins, like right. baby twins. <laughs> Yeah, they're three months old, twin oh girls. Yes, we were scheduled to talk to you, I think, like three months ago. And you very quickly were like, what was I thinking? And I think we both <laughs> were like, what were you thinking? Right. So talk to us a little bit about parenting twins living with two illnesses. Right. The twins are, so they're our, my second and third child. So we actually have a four-year-old son who keeps us on our toes as well. You know, it's very, it can be very challenging. The, we'll say this, like the twins have not been currently as hard as we thought it would be. Thankfully, you know, there was that initial, like, I mean, we slept, not, we didn't sleep in the hospital at all. I mean, like when we were there, like we went through a period of just like a week of just like literally no sleep with the hospital and stuff like that. But once we settled in, it was all good, but I did have some issues from Crohn's. I'd had some Crohn's issues kind of flare up during that period of adjustment and no sleep and stuff like that for that first like week that we were getting everything transitioned and you know trying to get my son our older son kind of transitioned so you know there was definitely some impact to my z my disease and that initial trying to get just get used to everything and get out of the hospital and all of that but yeah it's definitely challenging I mean I you know from a my other disease the hypophosphatasia you know I do have to go out of state for treatment there's nobody here where I am that that knows anything about the disease so I was referred out of state so I do have to travel every you know two to three times a year for a couple of days at a time and it's very hard you know when like my son doesn't understand when I'm away for three days and then having to be away from now the twins I, I go out of town in a couple of weeks for that so I'm gonna be away from them so there are aspects of it that can, that's really hard you know being away is hard and then you know my son all now that he's getting older ask about all the injections and the surgeries and all of that and um, I just am open and honest with him as much as he can kind of you know take in um, I never hide my illness or anything from from my family or my kids or anything like that you know I do my best to, to be present where I can and you know do the on the good days try to make sure that I do what I can to be in their life and all of that and it's very challenging it's very a huge balance and I am thankful that one of my diseases is fairly under control so that I can kind of take the other and you know, there are things that I was supposed to have surgery right around the time that we were having the, 
the twins and things like that. So I had to, you know, there are times where you have to push things out and just kind of rework your life around it. But yeah, it's very challenging, but it's, you know, thankfully that my wife is very supportive and, uh, you know, has the ability to keep our household intact, even with twins and a four-year-old. And so, yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, now that we have plans and stuff, we're never on time anywhere right now. And, you know, my house is a madhouse most nights, but it's still, it's a lot of fun. And I try to do my best that, you know, to, to balance everything and just take it in. And thankfully I have a supportive wife who's you know, has the ability to keep everybody under control when I'm, when I need a little time to kind of relax and get away, you know, and lay down and stuff like that. So yeah, it's very challenging, but it's still a lot of fun, but it's definitely hard sometimes trying to find the balance between being sick and doing all this other stuff, but also having not only children, you know, I have a career and all of that. So yeah, it, it can be a lot for sure, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's a lot of fun. Oh, I'm, I'm genuinely mystified on how you managed to, to live your life without like never sleeping because yeah, you have a full-time real job. You do all of this stuff virtually, like for the, you know, IBD groups and you're on social media. You have a lot of really great content on your Instagram and all these sort of things. And you have like a whole life outside of all of that too. I'm like, I can barely do a job and then do this as well. So bless. Again, it's, you know, I have a really great wife, very good at keeping everything. And again, the twins, like seriously, knock on wood, have been, very, they sleep the night already and they're on their own schedule. And, you know, like outside of the, they were premature, but they didn't have to stay in the hospital or anything like that. So outside of the initial like few weeks of having to feed, you know, having to be up every three hours and feed them and stuff like that. Like once we got past that, it's been really chill, thankfully. And I think that part of it is that our four-year-old was such a hard baby. <laughs> that the fact that both of these twins are just a little easier than he was, I think prepared us for this, but they generally they're sleeping through the night and don't even want to get up to eat in the middle of the night right now. So we're doing, I mean, we're, you know, soaking that in. You're winning as parents. You're, you're yeah, winning at the moment, at the moment you're winning as parents you know, it can change <laughs> any second. It can change. So I have two directions that I would like to take us in. So I'm gonna let you pick. So I have seen you actually present like at a patient education event talking about research because I know that that's what your degree is in. And also like you outside of what you do with your own social media page, you're also a part of like IBD social circle, right? So I would like for you to talk about both of those, but you get to pick which direction you go in first. Yeah. So I got a master's degree in research and I spoke at the conference that you were at way back when it was, I had just actually had one of my hip replacements and then came to the conference and then left and had another hip replacement. So I did my degree, my master's degree in biomedical research and um, did the bench research for a while. And uh, once my, I was going to get a PhD, I got into multiple programs and decided not to do it. Once my health kind of took a turn with the rare disease diagnosis, I was diagnosed at the very like end of my master's degree. And I'd already had the two replacements and, you know, having to travel and all of that stuff, just kind of the rare disease came to a point like ahead at that time. And I just had to take time for myself. And we, you know, I was still married, but we didn't have, have any kids or anything at the time. 
So I decided to not go get a PhD and that was a tough decision to make, but my health just couldn't, couldn't keep up with it. Um, and that's just life and part of it. So I pivoted my career into more of data analytics and that aspect of it. And I, I'm still involved in some IBD research and there's some stuff that goes on with the local hospital here that I've been a part of. And I still have an involvement in that, just didn't pursue the whole PhD part. And so I still use that, a lot of educational content that I post and um, I try to keep up with the research and post stuff like that and try to break down a lot of the, the new research and the new treatments and all of that, which is a lot of fun for me because it still allows me to kind of be part of, you know, the, the research aspect of it. And then I have outside of all of that, you know, like you said, I I am a part of other like groups or whatever you want, the IBD social, social circles one. And that is where, you know, IBD patients, um, advocates who are involved in the community um, in some way or the other come together to try to really put out content and strategize and, and just try to make, put out stuff for the community as a whole and try to bring together voices from different aspects of, you know, the spectrum of inflammatory disease from ulcerative colitis to Crohn's disease, uh, people who have ostomies to J pouches to who have all of these different experiences to lend our voices to try to do things that really can impact the community at large. And that's been a really cool experience. And it's something you know, I made some really close friends through that and um, some really great patients who genuinely care about the work and want to do things to help patients. And that is the whole, the end goal is to try to help change the landscape for patients. And that's part of the work that the advocacy that I do in my own you know, page and world is to, for that. And some of that came from the research and educational part of what I did and my degree lended into that and allowed me to kind of put myself in a position to be part of that. And, you know, I get to go, to, I still like I'm involved in research conferences, you know, like Digestive Disease Week, and I'm going to Vegas in January for the Crohn's and Colitis conference that they have there. And so even though, you know, for me, like not going to get my PhD still and still being able to be involved in that, you know, having the master's and stuff has really lended to being able to try to break all that research down into science and it's allowed me to extend my patient advocacy work into things like the social circle and all these other groups. It's a lot of fun and it's, you know, it's a lot of work, but it's something that I very much enjoy. Um, I'm glad that I was able to kind of pivot from where I thought my life was he headed, but to be able to kind of use still what I learned to, to help the community and, and grow the community that I'm a part of. Are you presenting ever, like officially presenting at yeah. any of these conferences? conferences or I've done a couple. Mm -hmm. It feels a little chicken or egg, which came first. Did your interest in research come because of being diagnosed with Crohn's disease at a, at a younger age, or were you already interested in that? So I started college as um, a biology major in the beginning. I didn't know if I was going to go to medical school or maybe do research. And then I was subsequently two months into starting college, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. So both of those things kind of came together. The research part, um, when I decided I didn't want to go to medical school, that I wanted to do research came a few years after. So I think that Crohn's disease definitely pushed me more towards wanting to do research and wanting to go into research because I was curious about a lot of the specific details about the disease and the immune system and all of that. So I think that it's a little bit of both. I mean, I was diagnosed so early on that it definitely lended into going more into research. That makes sense. And I'm also curious because I 
we do see a, people like you who tend to be sort of what I would refer to as more of our like IBD influencers. You have lots of people that follow you. You do this really great content. Is that what has led you into doing some of these things like IBD social circle and getting involved with kind of different advisory committees and things like that? Or was that something that, again, you kind of came into because of already having a research background? What came, again, another chicken or egg, which came first? Part of the stuff, some of the stuff that I've been able to do has been because I've built sort of following mm-hmm. part of it. I mean, that's just how that has worked is, you know, you have a big following, you have a lot of people reach out to you and want to do things and be involved and get in front of your audience. And, but the research part that I was in allowed me to be in more of these um, advisory committees and sort of consultant roles for pharmaceutical companies and things like that. You know, I've been lucky to be part of like drug launches and things where, you know, these companies are trying to develop educational materials and trying to make sure that what they're putting out from a science standpoint makes sense to patients because that's their target community. And so it's definitely been a bit of both. I think a lot of the initial stuff was more from the following. And then as I kind of got my master's degree in biomedical research and was doing more of that allowed me to kind of go a little deeper into the more science-y pharmaceutical world of, of things. So yeah, it's it's worked well to have kind of both um, because it's allowed me not just, uh, you know, do things that like be invited to talk and stuff like that, but it's not going to really get deeper into some of the educational and science aspects of, of the disease. I'm curious, you mentioned being involved in some of the aspects of drug launches and patient information. What was the most tone deaf thing that was presented to you that you were like, you just literally face palmed and were like, what, what are you thinking company? Oh, right. I mean, so like, I'm trying, there was, I'm trying to think there was this one and I don't know who, so I I was on something that was, it was like a blind review of some like educational materials. Like they wanted like a gym. They didn't want us to know who, who was doing it, but they wanted me to like give them an honest answer of like these I don't remember if it was like commercial, some kind of marketing materials, but there was this something that came up that was just like very, it was terrible. It was like something related to like toilet paper in the bathroom. And like, it was just, it was very tone deaf and very like attributing living with the IBD is like, as we all know, like just like being in the bathroom and like toilet paper is like our whole world kind of thing. It was terrible. It was awful. And they asked, they asked me and I told them, I was like, this is terrible. I was like, do not put this out. I was like, because you will make a lot of people mad. And yeah, it was, I can't remember the exact picture, but it was, it was so awful that I was just like, y'all don't, don't do this. Like, just you will lose like a lot of clientele from this part, but yeah, it was terrible. Yeah. But things like that, I mean, a lot of the tone deaf stuff is it's really been things where they just very much relate this disease to one thing. Um, and that's going to the bathroom and having diarrhea. I mean, that's real, that's the truth. And like everybody knows that that's not just the case. I mean, you know, there's just so much more to it, but yeah, there've been things like that. And you just kind of have to, it takes a while to get you. Cause I asked and I'll ask them, I'm like, do you want my like 100% honest opinion? I was like, cause it's going to be bad. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, okay, here you go. And then they were, they were like, all right. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like all the period commercials that are like, everybody's like riding bikes and wearing white shorts. It's like, you know, listen guys, like that's, that's not what life is about all the time. And also (laughs) I have to chuckle because like, because the 
every computer, every device in my home is smart. And so it's listening to me. Everything is listening to me constantly. And so all of the commercials we get are all for drugs. They're all for medications. And so and there, a lot of them are IBD medications. And so my husband is always like, why is everybody like happy and running around? Like, why, like, why is this a thing? But you're right. Even still, the commercials are a lot about like bathrooms still, still you know, and I mean, how many conversations have we had from people that are like pain, fatigue, all this other stuff that goes along with it. And so I just think it's funny. No, my personal favorite, this is totally off topic is all the old, what what were the herpes commercials where everybody's like frolicking outside in the sunshine and they're like on hammocks. My friends and I used to say, if we, we, if we could only get herpes, we'd be as happy as they were. Look how happy (laughs) they are. If we could only, if we could only get herpes, we'd be as happy as they are. Here's the thing though. It's not the herpes, it's the medication. So it's really just like (laughs) the medication that suddenly is like, an. it's it's actually an antidepressant. That's what they don't tell you. True. Sorry. (laughs) We got speed. One of the two. Got it. Got it. Sorry. Back to you, Aaron. Back to you. (laughs) I'm curious. What advice would you have for people who would want to get involved in that kind of thing? Because I do think there are people that a, I mean, like I love to give my opinion on things. I love it. I don't have IBD, so therefore they wouldn't choose me, but I know there's plenty of our folks that have a lot of opinions about stuff and would love to be able to be like helpful. What advice would you give to people who would like to get involved in these types of advisory boards or like in these types of engagement opportunities? It's tough when that, you know, you're not like a scene um, is one thing. And I hate to say like that aspect of it, but part of it is that if people don't know that you kind of like exist and are out there and, and even you don't even have to be and make your own Facebook page or anything like that, you can just be involved. And I told people to get involved in some of the things like their foundational like events and Twitter chats that these groups have like the Monday night IBD, which is on Twitter, which is great. And um, so if you want to get involved, involved in having these kind of engagement opportunities is get involved with the community. That is the biggest kind of thing that you can do to kind of get out there. And one cool thing I think about the IBD social media world is that especially on like a Twitter or um, even more Instagram these days, there are these physicians and research institutions that are on there and actively involved in the community. There are a ton of IBD physicians out there who are very much in the space and interacting with patients. And I have, you know, there are physicians that I know and have worked with and done stuff with that I can text or send a Twitter message and just ask general questions. And they're very, very involved in the community. And so getting involved in that way is something that can very much help you get into more engagement opportunities. There are like smaller pharmaceutical companies that are on the internet and social media who interact with these communities now. And I think that what we've seen, especially in like the pharmaceutical and advisory board world over the last few years is that they're very much pulling more patients in and and not just patients who, you know, sort of like me and some of the other people who have been in this for a very long time, but they want more of your kind of every day patient who's really just in this and doesn't necessarily want to be in the spotlight, doesn't want to do all that, but wants to contribute. But so they want, you know, that everyday experience of people who just want to live with the disease and kind of do their own thing and stuff like that, but um, are willing to share their opinion. So my biggest piece of advice would be get involved with the community. And that doesn't mean getting out there and just sharing your story that can be interacting with other patients and some of these physicians and some of these institutions that are on social media. And there are things that are posted, like where they're asking for your opinion and that you can send stuff in. So yeah, get involved. I think like 
Twitter is a really good space for that just because there are so many physicians on Twitter um, right now. So get involved in that community. Look up, I mean, you can do hashtags, hashtag IBD, hashtag Crohn's, hashtag um, ulcerative colitis. Just look it up and get involved with the community. And that will go a long way of, of trying to get your name out there and getting involved with this stuff. I mean, it, and eventually you will have people either invite you to do like a little advisory board or be part of little things. And two is I think that part of it is if you genuinely want to get really involved and like with the community and get involved in like a lot of advocacy boards and with these companies is make your intentions clear. I mean, reach out to the company, reach out to um, people doing the studies. I mean, the worst thing they can do is say no or not respond. But I mean, I did that early on. I would reach out to these companies and stuff like that saying, hey, look, if you need somebody to give an opinion or share their story, like I'm your guy. And eventually somebody bit and it turned into having a long relationship with some of these companies. So get involved in the community and, and kind of make your intentions known if you genuinely want to get involved. Awesome advice. So where do people go, patients that want to get accurate but understandable information on IBD research? I mean, you know, the Crohn's Colitis Foundation is a good one, of course, just because they genuinely do have good, accurate information. And then I would look to some of these IBD centers that are online. Uh, I mean, you got like University of Michigan and I think like Vanderbilt, like these places have IBD, true IBD centers that also put out accurate information about the disease. So definitely go there. And if you find a good patient advocate, somebody like that, they can typically point you in a direction of what you're kind of looking for. But I would say the foundation, research institutions, you know, like true IBD clinics. I mean, depends on how far you want to go. You can always go to like PubMed or something like that if you're really, really into research. But if you're not, I would definitely kind of kind of go that route with it. So also just be careful. We all know, be careful with the internet, careful what you Google because um, you could get something crazy. Yes, yes, very much so. <laughs> yes, very much so. But it's helpful to know like people like you that are taking some of this and distilling it down. I mean, another one that obviously we've interviewed on the show that, it, that we think does a great job is Natalie Hayden, who really does some great deep dives on some information and has lots of speakers come in that are very knowledgeable about these things. So that's another one that I know we, you know, we get a lot of information from. I love her. She's one of my I mean, favorites. she's so, I mean, she was a journalist and you can tell, like she just does really fantastic, you know, background research on her stuff. I met her several times in oh, person. She's she awesome. was super lovely. We got, we caught her on a day when she was <laughs> real fired up about something though. So that was extra, that was extra fun. <laughs> it was extra fun to talk to her because she was like on it. She was she, ready. She gets fired up, which is awesome. I love that. I love that. Erin, it was, has been such a pleasure to talk to you, um, but unfortunately we are closing out our time with you. So last question for you is if you had one piece of advice for the IBD community, what would it be? I would say that living with this disease can be very challenging. I mean, I know that, you know, like I said, it hasn't been overly challenging for me for the last few years. It was very challenging early on. So I think that what I've learned over time is to try to celebrate those small little victories that you have in your treatment journey and be as active as you can in your treatment journey, whether that is, you know, having a deep dive conversation with your physician and, and just educating yourself on your disease or things that can go a long way to help you through this um, and get through it. And I think find your community because they will get you through a lot of those hard days that you have. Great advice. Thank you so, so much for joining us. We had been trying to get you on here for a while. We're so glad that we could finally, finally sit down with you. So thank you so much for sharing so openly with us, Aaron. Thank you everybody for listening. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Thank you for having me. Hey, this is Aaron. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share it with your friends.